Let's bow before our Lord together in prayer, shall we? Our God in heaven, you sit above the circle of the earth and you measure the heavens with a span. You make the clouds your chariot and you ride upon the wings of the wind. We stand in awe at your grandeur, your majesty, your holiness. You, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting God. And you tell us, Father, that no one can know your mind. And no one has been your counselor. And no one can say unto you, why have you done what you've done? Or stay your hand from doing it. Father, ours is but to bow and to worship you. And Father, just as you, uh, through the sacred scriptures, have seen fit to condescend to reveal your will, your existence, your design and purpose, your promises, your Savior, for us. All of that here in this sacred scripture. You spoke through the feeble vessels of humanity. The prophets of the old. The apostles of the New Testaments. But in it all. You superintended father in the entire process. That that which is the final result. Is thus saith the Lord. And so, Lord, we bow the whole of our being before you today. Our heart, our mind, our soul, our will. And say, Father, won't you be exalted in us. And cause us to know something of your voice preached to us. Through the pages of Holy Writ. And through the feeble means of a human messenger. And so, Father, as we receive the scriptures that are broken before us this day as bread to our souls, may you pour forth the water of life upon it and cause to sprout forth within us the life everlasting that would cause us to be conformed Oh, conform to that image of our holy Lord, Jesus Christ. The one who knew no sin. And yet for our, in our behalf, he became sin. That we might become your righteousness in him. And so, Father, won't you open the ears of each one of us. Open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive. And Father, cause repentance where it's needed. Oh, increase our faith. And cause us, Father, to go forth with a fresh zeal and a fresh vision for what it is that you are about and your kingdom and your righteousness, the banner under which we go. Maybe so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Our text 
for this morning. Out of Acts chapter 16, will be read by our brother and elder Paul. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, we start at verse 11 to verse 24. Acts 16, verse 11. Let us listen to the words of the living God. Therefore, loosening from Taurus, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of the part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city, abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto a woman which resorted there. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened. And she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us which brought her masters much gain from soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul being grieved, turned unto the Spirit. I command thee in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out that same hour. And when her master saw that, the hope of their gains was gone. They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates saying these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive neither to observe being Romans 
And the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning, quite simply, Gospel Deliverance. Well, when we come into this portion of Acts chapter 16, we see the first uh, evangelism and church planting begun on the continent of Europe proper. And so coming out of Turkey here, Remember the call last week we saw Macedonia come this way. And so, in obedience to that call, you recall that they traveled that way. And the two most prominent people mentioned as we begin are two women. And they couldn't be more different, could they? One of them, a God-fearer, that means she was a Gentile who was... uh, following the Jewish mode of worship. And the other was a demon-possessed fortune teller. That's pretty opposite. One of those we see very quite peaceful interchange with her, with, with the apostles. Of course, that would be with Lydia. And the other, uh, one that's uh, a lot more exciting in some ways, or a lot more violent, you could say in the interaction with her. Nevertheless, in both cases, the gospel delivers them from slavery. And so we would like to look at these two things together. First of all, in verses 11 and uh, through 15, prayerful but partial truth. Prayerful but partial truth. You know, it's interesting that the Lord leads Paul and his his entourage to Macedonia. As I shared last week, that was uh, the home country of Alexander the Great. That's where he started. And so as we think of world conquest in that era prior to his coming before the Romans, it was Alexander, Alexander the Great, and his kingdom all around the Mediterranean. Remember, he went all the way to the Indus River, into India a little bit, and there he was turned back. And uh, he died in Babylon, but his kingdom stretched all the way around the Mediterranean, off into the Middle East, and all the way down to India. And so that's quite a land mass that's covered. When he died, it was uh, split up between four generals, each of them taking a part uh, of his kingdom. But here he died, a young man. His kingdom was overrun and overwhelmed by the Romans. Here, Jesus, his conquest is by a different means. Not by sword or spear, not by armies of men, but by these handfuls of missionaries. 
and persecuted Christians and apostles who have world conquests by means of the gospel of the kingdom. And rather than enslaving people, this was to set them free from slavery. And so let us begin here, first of all, in verse 11, and consider the beginning of something new. Do you remember when we began the study of the book of Acts, we covered in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now, O Theophilus, that first uh, uh, book that we wrote to you with regard to all that Jesus began to say and to do. In other words, it was written by Luke. The first book that he, that he wrote about, or he talked about, was the gospel according to Luke. So the gospel according to Luke, and here's the second composition, the history of the church there from Luke's perspective. Well, we have Luke saying in the beginning there that he researched it with those who were there with Christ the whole time he was on the earth, you know, until he was taken up. And then it talks about him being those who were there at the immediate point, And then it shifts right here. And right here in verse 11, let me read something to you. He's been saying they, they, they all along. But here in verse 11, notice in chapter 16, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. The next day uh, came to Neapolis. We. We saw that... Paul and Silas had picked up a, a young disciple by the name of Timothy. Well, now they pick up the blessed physician by the name of Lucas or Luke. And so Luke joins the group. He evidently joined them in Troas. And here he is with them. And uh, how providential. And by the way, you, you're, there are books written about this that are fascinating you know, one of the oldies that was written uh, almost 100 years ago now, or more than 100, by William Ramsey. Uh, several books about uh, uh, Paul and, and his travels through uh, Turkey and, and Luke, the historian. And uh, critics always are trying to deny scripture. Say, oh, you see, they didn't even know where, they were, where, where things were. They didn't describe them correctly or anything. And then archaeology started turning over with its spade, new evidence, more and more and more. And we found that Luke's history and the details he records and the places he describes and the people who were there and those who were in office were so accurate, you see. That we have those who, many of them who were critics in the past, that is deniers of scripture, have been won over and saying, this is one who was there, an eyewitness, and saw it as so. God's word, beloved. Trust the word. And so anyway, here, Timothy, or excuse me, Luke is recording what is taking place here. And we find here that they come to Philippi. Now, Philip was Alexander the Great's father. And so Alec, uh, Philip had, uh, was the one who developed this city. There was gold that was nearby there. And he had uh, uh, all kinds of things that were uh, done there to make it a primary city. And when the Romans came, the Romans made it a colony. That, notice that's brought out and that's important. You know why when it comes to the laws that are being applied to Paul and Silas here in just a few verses. 
It's a Roman colony in that there was a military garrison there. Secondly, it was a Roman colony in that they were working all things according to the dominos of Rome, set upon the pattern of the laws of Rome itself. And so as a colony, you see, they were coming, bringing the gospel into a place that was an official prominent city modeled after the Roman municipal constitution. Strict Roman law. Now that comes into play when Paul is beaten and then they find out he's a Roman citizen and they beat him contrary to Roman law. See how it comes in the picture there. A colony. But as we come to the 13th verse, you'll notice there was no synagogue there. It was a very prominent city, Gentile city. And so as they've come here, remember as we went through Antioch, Pisidia, remember as we saw Lystra, Derby, and, and all kinds of places in Turkey, there were synagogues there where they would go into the synagogue first. Here we've come into Gentile country. And so there aren't enough Jews there. You had to have 10 uh, adult Jewish men to have a synagogue. That was a the minimum. They don't even have, uh, we, well, no men are mentioned actually. If you did not have a synagogue and you were going to meet, you could only meet for prayer and for washing, unless you had a man who came who was a teacher or qualified to teach out of the Torah, out of the word of God, the law. Well, what happens here, it says, the call, here's what's required. You have to meet outside of the town or city. You need to meet by water, preferably running water. If not, the ocean will do or something of that nature. So as we come here in verse 13, read with me. On the Sabbath day, we, that is Luke and Timothy and Paul and Silas, went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Notice there were no men. Now you say, this is odd. Well, not really. Remember when we were talking about Timothy last week? Remember it was his mother and grandmother. Of course, they were Jewesses, but they were faithful. And they were the ones who were worshipers of God, married uh, to Gentiles, nevertheless faithful to the true and living God and to his word. These women had evidently been exposed to this. Thyatira, or Thyatira, if you want to call it that, was the town or city out of that's down below where they are and to the, to the south of where they are. And on the coast, or almost on the coast, they're from east of Ephesus in Turkey. That's where Lydia's from. And so they meet here by the river, as is stipulated by the rabbis. And we find here that the women who met there were meeting as they usually did. They would do lustrations or, or wash their feet, in other words. They would also do the prayers offered unto God on the Sabbath. And so in verse 14, we come to our point here of Lydia. A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. There are a number of things to note about her. She's a, 
obviously she is a woman and a God-fearer, and so she knows something of the Word of God. She knows something of the promises, no doubt, of Messiah. She knows something of, of God's law. You had to know God's law. You know, the Ten Commandments, for example. There's no other God. That first commandment set her apart from almost everybody else in, in Philippi. One God. And you shall not make unto yourself any graven image. That too, no idolatry. That too set him apart from everybody else. We could go through the rest of the commandments, but you get the idea. <clears throat> Obviously, honoring his name and on keeping the Sabbath day holy, sanctified to him. And so when they, they meet together, she understands these things, and she's worshiping the true and the living God and knows something of the covenant promises of God. But that's not enough. I've heard uh, sermons by people. I've heard sermons that spoken of, of God this and God that. And they have excellent morality. And, and they have a speaking of God. And, and how God is wonderful and everything. That's true. That's good. But what I did not hear is which God. We did not hear God described. In fact, I, I, and several of these sermons I'm recalling, they never mentioned Jesus Christ. Never mentioned the Holy Spirit. And I, and I ask myself, well, how do I know this is the God of the Bible we're talking about? Because they're speaking like I've heard many people who are not even Christians speaking of God. I've heard Muslims speak of God this way, you see. So it's not enough just to believe in God. That's a great starting point. But they have the truth of the word of God. So she acknowledges the Old Testament. She knows about the promises. So here, as they meet together, we see that Paul is the one who takes the lead, no doubt, and preaches the word of God. And so the Lord, it says, opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. We saw a bit of this in, in Acts 13, didn't we? Where Paul, the apostle, takes these uh, Old Testament passages and the Psalms, for example. You will not suffer your Holy One to see decay. But you'll, you'll remember talking about a Psalm 16, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until it made your enemies a footstool for your feet out of Psalm 110. Or we, we could think of Isaiah 53, 53, where the Lord talks about, you know, that he has made him a sacrifice for sin. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and our iniquity placed upon him. He made his grave with the rich, etc. And so all of these things out of the Old Testament where God says the seed of Abraham will be the one in whom we're saved. The son descended from Abraham. But the one who will be king is the son who's descended not only from Abraham but from David. And putting all these things together, he is the one who comes to deliver us from the bondage of sin, to deliver us from death. To cause us to be a people holy unto God. And he's the one in whom all salvation is found. And taking this Old Testament scripture, preaching Christ out of it. Just like Jesus did in Luke 24, where Jesus preached out of the Psalms, uh, excuse me, out of the law and the prophets and uh, the Psalms, preaching himself to the men of the road to Emmaus. And so the preaching was done. But no matter how good a speaker you may be, how persuasive, 
how eloquent, how intelligent, how well argued, how much evidence you give. God must open the heart. How many times do we read of Jesus preaching? Jesus preaching. And having those of the enemies of Christ with blind eyes, deaf ears, hard hearts, and stiff necks who say, kill him, as we sang in number 182. God must open the heart. Well, look here what he did. He opened the heart of Lydia to believe. You know, the scriptures talk about God opening the heart. We call it in theology the effectual call. The general call goes out to all. You're not to discriminate who you preach or give the gospel to. Never do that. Anyone who has a pulse, preach the gospel to them. Preach. If they're deaf, well, find a way. Use, use, it, use a visual way to do it. If they're deaf and blind, we're in trouble. But find a way to declare Christ to them. And so the gospel goes forth. And by the way, notice it's through this means. It's not through the maybe the more modern means. People think we can entertain people into heaven. People think that we can, can persuade them by scientific means. Others think that we, can, we, we have to use various other things that are more hip or more with the times. And this is what will bring people into the kingdom. No, the Lord has ordained his word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what pierces the heart. It is his word which comes upon and renews the mind. And remember what it says in Titus chapter 3. It says, it talks about, the, you know, our belief in Jesus Christ and how, uh, you know, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by we're washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he causes these things to be so. It talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, where it talks about the blindness of those. The God of his world has blinded their minds. They may not see the glory of Christ. What do we do? Give up. No. We preach Christ and him crucified, it says, and the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Stop there for a moment. In Sunday school, we're going through the creation account in Genesis 1 right now. And what did God say? First day, let there be light. We saw in Hebrews eleven three, for example, what did he make it out of? Nothing. What caused the light to be? God's word and power. His will. Beloved, what that 2 Corinthians 4, 6 verse is saying is God causes salvation to happen in us exactly the same way. He calls us forth to life like Lazarus out of the tomb, making us alive. And gives us breath. That's what he did to Lydia. First convert. On the continent of Europe. And how does he do it? The way he always does it. Through the sacred scripture. Jesus speaking of this in John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6, verse 37. Remember, Jesus says, All that the Father has given unto me will come unto me. And he who comes unto me, I will by no means cast out. But he goes on and to say in verse 44, No one can come unto me unless the Father should draw him. But then verse 63 of that same chapter, he says, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. That's what does it. He does it through his word. We're merely the mouthpiece. And so as you see the power of the effectual call of God, how does he work? No doubt he brought forth conviction. Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit and he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Like the minute we saw in the very second chapter of Acts, remember Peter's preaching and it says the men were cut to the heart saying, what must we do? The conviction of the Spirit cutting through all the facade, the hardness, the excuses, the rejection, the stiff-arming, the deadness. And he comes through and he brings to life. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Timothy 1.9 in this regard. And just thinking of what is, uh, what should I say? It seems to be rejected by so many nowadays that call themselves Christians as the means of salvation. He speaks at the end of verse 8, the gospel according to the power of God, verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. There's so much in that one verse. But you see here, in the, in the cool, gentle place of that river, by that riverside and the preaching of the gospel, these few women, why be bothered with these few women? Go to a bigger place where you've got better opportunities. God led them there. And he chose through that one small venue to do mighty things. Well, what happens? As you see there in verse 15, she and her household were baptized. Now remember that this is a woman who is a seller of purple. To sell purple, which was a royal color, you had to have a license from the Roman government. It was illegal to possess it uh, unless you were in these official channels. Moreover, she has a home here in Philippi, and she also has a home, evidently, in Thyatira. So she's a rather wealthy lady. Moreover, she's with the ladies and she's traveling here to this place and she has a domicile here as well and no husband is ever mentioned. We can assume, I believe, that she's of somewhat more mature age and that she is a, probably a widow. And furthermore, that after her conversion, she invites these four men into the home, which is evidently large enough to, for them to be housed in and separate from where she would be living and that sort of thing, that it would be improper otherwise, that uh, all of these things must be the case. All of that said, 
It doesn't mention any infants. That's why I'm bringing it to the bringing it up. But it does mention our household. God is pleased, and aren't you happy? He is. God is pleased to work in households to save. How many of us here can say, "I came from a Christian home"? At least one of my parents was. Was, was a Christian, or I was raised in the church, or I was, I was someone who was constantly under the, the sound of this truth. Praise God itself, and he saves. And so she, and her probably servants too, by the way, she and her household were baptized. And her house more than likely became a church. The church venue of Philippi. Just in review, we need to remember she was sincere. But sincere is not enough. There must be that persuasion of the spirit of the gospel and the truth and trust of that truth. And in the person and work of Christ. Furthermore, Lydia As we think of her, and she did repent and believe, I think of others who have been religious like Lydia was, but that's as far as it went. I have a little pamphlet I've read years ago, and I rediscovered it and reread it here a few weeks ago, and it's called The Almost Christian. And I think of these things. Of people who could be religious as someone who could be attached. And they like a few things that are about the religion. But they just are not those who bow unto the King and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the ultimate sense. And so as we look, God opened the heart. And God's first convert. It was prayerful but partial truth. Well, God changed that through his apostle. And his word. It was prayerful and rejoicing in the gospel. But let me hasten to my second late woman that we've mentioned here, really a young girl that is mentioned in verses 16 and following. In this point, I have entitled Dominion of Darkness Dethroned. The Dominion of Darkness Dethroned. Well, here we see Satan's uh, assaults and schemes at work. If we look here in verse 16, notice what it says. Now, it happened as we went to prayer. uh, So they're on the way probably the next uh, Sabbath. Uh, A certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination. By the way, the word that's, that's used here, it's interesting, is the word python. The spirit of a python. And uh, if, if you know anything about uh, Greek uh, mythology or, or what went on there, the, the oracle at Delphi uh, was there where they believe it was to Apollo, Apollo, the god, little g, Apollo. And there the oracle, this is someone who would be divination, who would tell the things like that, would be a woman. And, and was usually she would be overcome by these powers and she would tell uh, this well, it was they believed that Apollo would come out and take the form of a python, and that he would inhabit this woman, and that she would be able to tell uh, the future or give you the direction or something like that. 
And so here's a woman who is actually indwelt by the spirit of a python, it says. Just thought you'd find that interesting. And uh, obviously demon-possessed. And she brought her masters much money through fortune-telling. There's always the profit motive. And so we see here, there's, it says, and it happened. But notice furthermore, in verse 16, did you catch what it said? Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed of a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much money. Did you get that met us? In other words, she came looking for them. And it says it happened. This is no coincidence, in other words. It is under God's sovereign providence, obviously. All things working together for good. But not only God sovereignly ordaining that this would be the case, this confrontation would take place, but also she went looking for them and met them as they showed up in Philippi. And so, why? Well, for one thing, maybe she's this demonic presence wants to detain and distract these men from worship. If there's anything darkness hates, the devil hates, demonic entity would hate, it would be the worship of the true and living God. Fascinating, isn't it? If you read over, what is it, in Ezekiel, where it talks about uh, uh, the devil as the anointed cherub. And it talks about how he defiled his sanctuaries and that kind of thing. Do you know what the cherubs do, the cherubim? The cherubim are those who lead all of heaven and earth in worship unto God. What do they do but cry out, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What happened with the devil, it says, is that he wanted the worship for him. And so to worship the true and living God, oh, that grinds on the demonic. And so we see this is the confrontation. But look at verse 17 with me. The girl followed Paul and us. There is Luke involved again, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Well, that's free advertisement. That's pretty good, isn't it? And uh, you say, Well, that's, that's not bad. Uh, that, that's, that's good. And so you've got this demon possessed woman or girl following around, and you're preaching the true and living God. And Jesus Christ, the Savior, and here's this dark and demented and evil woman saying, these are the ones who are the servants of the true and living God. You get the picture? There's a problem here. The schemes of the devil are always meant to go against the Lord, not for him. So why would this be the case? Well, let's think for a moment. First of all, in that pagan society, the true and living God, they use that terminology, by the way, the most high God, rather. The most high God, you know who that was? Zeus. So as she's saying, servants of the most high God, everybody that's pagan and only knows paganism is assuming, oh, these are servants of Zeus. So you see the deception. Always beware. Of the advertisement from darkness. 
If they're on your side, you're doing something wrong. Secondly, she's making quite the scene. She's very noisy, broadcasting her poisonous message. Well, how is it poisonous? Well, there's another thing, guilt by association. Guilt by association with her, a demon-possessed girl. And the relentless broadcasting of this. Notice it says that it's affecting the crowds. The crowds are hearing this in verse 22. Who is it that brings Paul and Silas to the magistrates? The crowds. And so stirring up the crowds. So turning them really to a different God, distracting from the ministry Paul would like to do in preaching for himself and not this girl doing it. And furthermore, getting the crowd stirred up in the wrong way. And uh, saying this is the way of salvation. In other words, to discredit the gospel by association with the occult. It's fascinating to me of the quantity of false prophets, false teachers, false preachers that are in our land. You go to the internet, they're ubiquitous. Prophecies they give that don't come true. If someone gives a prophecy and it doesn't come true, what do you call them? False prophet. Of those that, are, that, are, that have started cults, whether they go back to the uh, 19th century, you know, the 1800s, or in the 20th century or today. False prophets. False religions like Islam, which have a false prophet like, like Muhammad giving these things out. And on and on we could go. Can you have a mixture of the occult and the gospel? Second Corinthians chapter 6 one of those passages you probably know well. It says, I think it begins in like verse 16 and following. It says, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? It says, what fellowship have darkness with light, with God and Belial? You know, there is no fellowship between. And this is the very thing that is being spoken of. And so when you think then of what's taking place, here she's drawing the focus subtly away from Paul, the truth there, and directing it back at her and the dark spirit that inhabits her. <clears throat> well, she's following him around. There is no escape, no safe place. So what do you do? You run out of town screaming, waving your hands. No. He turned. Greatly distressed. And he did not speak to her. But he spoke to the demon. And commanded her. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. Let's talk about that for a moment. In the calling of Paul. Let me... Ask you to turn with me to Acts. You're in Acts, Acts 26. Paul later on will be recounting his calling by the Lord Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. And 
He says in verse 7, I'll pick up with verse 17, 26, 17. It's verse 18 I want to get to. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, verse 18. Now listen why. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus said, I'm sending you to turn them from Satan to God. How can Jesus do that? Write down Colossians 2.15. Many times quoted. 14 talks about how our transgressions and the certificate of debt nailed to the cross. Ours nailed to the cross. And it says Jesus Christ, speaking of him, it said that he disarmed the principalities and powers. That he put them to a public public shame and he triumphed over them in that cross upon which he died. One of my favorites, perhaps the favorite in talking about this is John uh, chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verses 31 to 33, Jesus puts it this way. He calls the devil the ruler of this world that's prior to the cross. 31. 1231 of John, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This said he, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus Christ saying, I will draw all peoples to myself. But first, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Disarmed, as we saw. Colossians 2. Cast out there in John chapter 12. You look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 and following. Don't worry, I'm just hitting the high points. We're almost done. And in Ephesians 1.19, he talks about the power that is at work in us. How can we be delivered from the, the slavery to sin, as Romans 6 would call it? How can we be delivered from the darkness of the mind and granted this repentance unto life, etc.? <clears throat> it is by the power of our risen Christ and the Spirit that brings him. Verse 19 picks up in the middle of a sentence. I'm sorry, about six or seven verses are one sentence. But let me pick up there. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, now listen, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Now listen to this. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the fullness of his body, a full, uh, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Did you get that? His name. What is it Paul turned and said? In the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. What does that name mean? This authority. All authority in him. And so, she's delivered. The demon's cast out. 
you have in your bullet, your bulletin has the sermon notes. I have something there about uh, Matthew chapter 12. I'll let you read it for yourself. There's Jesus. He cast the demon out and they remember the Pharisees think he did it by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebub. Jesus says, you know, a, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. How can you plunder a man's house unless first you enter into that house, bind the strong man, and then plunder his house? He said, that's what I've done. And so as we see here, beloved, the deliverance of this woman, this is something that is directly related to who Christ is. This is who we preach. Not some meek and mild mamby-pamby love story type description I've heard that's syrupy and sappy and misses who he truly is. The power of God unto salvation. And so... The demons cast out. But you see, this too was part of the scheme of the devil. What do you suppose was the design? Okay, they're going to cast, they cast me out, but I'll drag them down with me. You suppose that was the idea? That doesn't sound like a demon thinking that way. Yes, it does. So what happens is these, these owners of the girl, you read it in the text, the owners of the girl are... are I hate to call them that, owners. But the ones unto whom she was enslaved, they just lost their means of making a profit. And so they drag these men. Notice they don't drag Timothy and Luke, apparently. Just Paul and Silas, the two obvious Jews. Probably dressed that way. Remember, Luke was a Gentile and uh, Timothy was half Gentile. And so here, these two are brought before the magistrate. But what had happened, and don't forget, and it's easy to run over it in the hurry of things. This girl was in bondage to darkness. Think of that. That her thought life, her emotions, her person under the dominion, the rule of the demons. You know, it's fascinating to me. The Bible talks that way to some degree, to everybody. I urge you to reread Romans 6, and it describes what baptism illustrates. That we've been delivered from the slavery to sin. We've been delivered from the lordship of darkness, the dominion of death. We're now servants of the living God. Washed from the filth and darkness that once controlled. And now cleansed and set free in Christ. There's a wonderful story of this girl we don't want to miss. Well, you saw the rest of the text, what happens. These men didn't preach a partial gospel. But the whole thing. The demon was loud and profitable 
to play on popular opinion. These men are against everything we're about. And by the way, isn't that the way it is in the world? We are contrary to this world. It's become out of fashion to say we are not supposed to be like the world. But we are called to be different. We're called to be under Christ alone. These men in the midst of enemy territory have come to conquer by the gospel. And so he cast out the demon. But they are in the process. Notice at the end. It says in verse 22 and 3, they stripped off their clothes from them. And they beat them with rods. Now don't think of a little reed. Think of a heavy rod that leaves not just a cut, but a bad bruise. Hard beating on the back. And so they were beaten. And it said, with many stripes, they laid many stripes on them and threw them into prison. Commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Not just satisfied to put them in prison. He put them in stocks. So their feet are there in stocks. No way to be comfortable. Everything restricted and hurting in the darkness of a prison. Well, beloved, it was painful. But... They were not ashamed of the gospel. The idea was to silence them, to isolate them, and ultimately have the officials send them away. That was a device, I think, the demonic wisdom that given to this girl was really about. But as you know and I do, what happens? Remember, she just happened, they happened upon this girl, she met them, that kind of thing. Just like that woman, Lydia, by the river, was not there by chance, not by coincidence. God had a purpose for her being there and had the timing and the purpose and the day and everything being exactly right for Paul and Silas and the rest to preach the gospel to her there. God-ordained meeting. Well, in like manner, this girl was really just useful in being delivered and bringing Paul and Silas to their next convert, the Philippian jailer. You see how God causes all things to work together for good. Trust. No matter how dark and bleak and painful it may be, Beloved, we are called not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to stand, no matter the opposition, no matter the consequences, to stand true to him. Oh, the dominion of darkness was dethroned with this girl. And the prayerful and partial truth became prayerful and saving truth. And we see God at work here in Philippi.
It started so small. But you read the epistle to the Philippians. It didn't stay small. God at work. The effectual call. No one can stop it. May God give us assurance of that. May he give us courage. May he give us the type of servanthood unto him that calls him Lord in this way. And also take courage with those you've been telling, you've been preaching or telling the gospel for a long time. And you're getting to the point of saying, it's hopeless. Oh, no, it's not. <clears throat> Pray that God may open the heart and the mind. And you see this, the rescue of the perishing. May God grant the grace for it. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is something that is so easily overlooked. What we have just seen declared in the preaching of your word, not just Lydia, but the slave girl. And it is a clear fact that the, gospel, the power of the gospel to salvation by you, and that power, as we think of Isaiah saying, Declaring that the Lord's arm is not too short to save. How clear is it here in this piece of scripture that we bow before you in absolute reverence, awe, and wonder at your work of grace upon these people and upon us, and continues on until the Lord returns, that the door of the gospel of grace is open. O Heavenly Father, seeing the road to Emmaus, the two men, realizing and saying, recorded in Scripture, were not our hearts burning within us when he was explaining the Scriptures to us? And so may it be with us, we pray, that our hearts might burn with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now receive the benediction of the Lord. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Amen.